Stargazers and thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara and I'm Rad Miller and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky over the month of January in our Cosmic Diary. Now, when looking at faint objects such as the stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you achieve night vision. Please allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, please do switch on the red night vision mode. Now to start off with, on the night of the 3rd of the January, look for the waxing crescent moon and Mars, Neptune and Venus, which will be closest to the horizon, and they'll all be in apparent alignment just after sunset in the southwestern sky. Now Venus is often known as the evening star, and it will be bright enough to be seen with just your eyes, as will Mars, which will appear a pinky-orangey colour. However, you will need a telescope to spot Neptune, and it will be within 2 degrees of Mars. And if you stay up, then on the early morning of the 4th of January, you may be able to spot some meteors from the Quadrantids meteor shower. The Quadrantids can be a strong shower, but the peak meteor activity lasts only a couple of hours compared to the couple of days, as with many other meteor showers. Most meteors are the result of dust from comets burning up as they descend through our atmosphere. But the Quadrantids is associated with an asteroid called 2003 EH1, which orbits the Sun every five and a half years. And in fact, it's the only meteor shower along with the Geminids that isn't caused by a comet. And you'll find the waxing gibbous moon only two and a half degrees from the orange-coloured star Aldebaran on the 9th of January. Aldebaran is the 14th brightest star in our sky and it's found in the constellation of Taurus. It's often referred to as the star in the eye of the bull. And look a little higher in the sky above Aldebaran to find the Pleiades, an open cluster of stars. Try counting the seven visibly bright stars with your eyes and then grab a pair of binoculars or a telescope to reveal the hundreds of stars in this cluster. Now, later on in the month, on the early morning of the 19th of January, look for the last quarter moon and you'll see Jupiter only three degrees away. And also you'll see the blue-white colour star Spica very close by. The first and last quarter phases are a brilliant opportunity to look at the craters on the moon's surface. And finally, watch the waning crescent moon pass by the red star Antares, then Saturn, and then Mercury as it makes its way around the Earth from the 23rd to the 25th of January. And look towards the southeast just before the sun rises and head out to an open area with a clear view of the horizon. Now, if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to ROG Astronomers. And now for our cosmic news. Hi there and welcome to our Cosmic News. Now, we have not one, but two stories for you this month. Um, Dara has chosen her favourite news story and I've chosen my favourite story and we want you guys to decide your favourite. So join us on Twitter, at ROG Astronomers. um, Tell us which one's your favourite and we'll see... Who wins this month's cosmic news battle? Okay, we're going to start off with you, Dara. Okay, are you prepared for this? Yeah, I'm ready. My news story this month is about an exotic liquid ocean on Pluto. An exotic liquid ocean. So I'm guessing not water? Not water. So the headline is that uh, the New Horizons data that has been collected is implying or inferring that there's actually a nitrogen ice-capped ocean, right. and that ocean is a dense, salty, ammonia-rich ocean. Okay. This ocean is basically found uh, in the elliptical basin known as Sputnik Planetia. 
<laughs> and Fantastic. It's a lovely name, isn't it? And it was created by uh, a likely collision by a Kuiper Belt object that's thought to be about 200 kilometers wide that hit Pluto about 4 billion years ago. Wow. And this ocean has formed in that crater. That's amazing. Okay. Right. And uh, so the ocean is quite large. It's thought to be uh, just less than 100 kilometers wide, but it's over 80 kilometers deep. Now, if we think about the, uh, the North Sea, the North Sea is no more than 100 meters deep. This ocean is 80 kilometers deep, so it's quite a big and vast ocean. So the science behind this story, uh, if we start off with Pluto, Pluto was actually discovered in 1930 by a gentleman called Clyde Tombo, and we didn't really know much about it, and it was only when that New Horizons probe uh, that flew by Pluto in the summer of 2015 that we actually started getting uh, the most up-to-date data, and they're using this data now to create models and simulations to work out what it's like on Pluto. And it kind of highlights um, the idea that once a mission ends, that's not the end of it most of the scientific discovery actually comes mm. uh, you know years after analysing and in fact I remember like all of us at the observatory remember we saw those first pictures and it was astonishing I mean my whole life I'd wanted to know what Pluto looked like and it looked like a big icy peach didn't it like with a massive heart on it it was amazing I've never seen anything like that before it looks absolutely stunning some of the pictures that we've got from it and really interestingly as well the New Horizons probe was launched in 2006 in January and back then Pluto was still a planet but by the time uh, uh, it arrived at Pluto, the New Horizons probe. Pluto had actually been declassified to a dwarf planet, and that happened literally in August of 2006. So, oh. hey, it left in search of a planet, and it came and yeah. arrived uh, when Pluto was a dwarf planet, which is quite nice. Yeah. Um, and that mission isn't over. It's still actually, the New Horizons probe is going further in or out from our solar system, and it's going to find a Kuiper Belt object called 2014 MU69, and it's due to rendezvous or meet this object uh, in December 2018. So it's not over yet. There's still more to look forward to. But back to this story. Um, it was William Mackinnon, a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. He was one of the co-authors of this study, and it's published in Nature. And like I said, they used computer models to work out uh, the highs and lows on Pluto. They worked out uh, the compositional data to work out what it's actually made of. And it's from this that they inferred or implied that there's an ocean there. So that's the most important thing about this, I think, that it's not actually a detection of an ocean, but they think it's there based on all the data that they have. Wow. And uh, I can't imagine swimming in that kind of ocean. Nitrogen and ammonia. Um, oh, the, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't sound, sound very does sound, doesn't sound great. But um, I mean, I always imagine that Pluto was like a dead ball of rock. And as we've seen from the pictures and the images and the data that it isn't. It's definitely not. Yeah. And actually the existence of this ammonia-rich ocean actually helps us to explain some other observations that we see on Pluto. Uh, one of the things is that uh, this crater that this uh, ocean formed in, when the crater formed, it kind of collapsed, so the sides sink in, and ah. that actually causes the ocean to uplift. Okay. So you've got this uplifted ocean, and then you've got the ice cap over it covering this ocean, and that actually creates a very huge mass excess, or a very um, kind of concentrated and dense region. And that part is actually tilted towards Pluto's largest moon, Charon. So it actually explains Ooh. why Pluto is tilted in the way that it is. And the second thing is that uh, it also provides uh, an explanation as to why this ocean is still there. Why hasn't it frozen over? And it's because ammonia acts like an antifreeze. So oh, wow. you've still got liquid ocean. Yeah. Uh, and it means that you can still have that uh, liquid form of an ocean at temperatures of about minus 100 degrees Celsius. Wow. 
that's a, I've learned loads today. That's yeah, amazing. Lots of interesting facts. Like it's got its own antifreeze, it's own ocean, and it's minus 120 degrees. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, the biggest thing about this for me is that when we find an ocean, and we're talking about an exotic ocean here, we're thinking about, is there potential for life? Mm. And I think it's important here to clarify that uh, this ocean isn't really necessarily a sign of liquid water. It's very ammonia-rich, like you said. It's not the type of uh, ocean you'd want to be swimming in. Uh, so it's unlikely that there'll be aquatic life like we know ah. But when we think about uh, like the methane seas on Saturn's moon Titan, it does raise the question as to uh, whether there could be some really like novel kind of life form that we might find there, something completely mm. different to any kind of life that we know of. Mm. Um, and we know here on Earth we get um, organisms called extremophiles. Yeah. So these are organisms that can survive in very harsh conditions, very mm -hmm. hot conditions, very cold conditions, very salty conditions. Um, so there could be some sort of extremophile life there, but with the amount of ammonia present in this uh, ocean on Pluto, it's highly unlikely that we'll find anything. But hey, if we do, it'll probably be some very simple organisms. Yeah, and it will completely, as you say, we'll have to rewrite our biology textbooks. Like, you know, we'll have to look at the origins of life in a completely different way. So the last little bit is the future of this. Um, and there are many bodies like Pluto in the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and maybe they have exotic oceans too. So they may have this kind of primitive organism or life, uh, like the earliest life here on Earth. Um, and like we said, uh, it's just an inference yet. So it's not a complete detection. But if we could have um, a future orbiter mission to Pluto to kind of complete the work that New Horizons started, something that would uh, use kind of radar to probe down into the surface and actually find if that ocean yeah. is there, um, you know, that could be a massive discovery. There you go. That's my story, Rad. Have you got something to oh, top that? Oh, ocean on Pluto. That's a good one. Well, okay, this is my story, Di. Are you ready for this? Uh, will the Earth still exist five billion years from now? What I don't know if you've ever thought. I know. I don't know if you've ever thought about like that far ahead. I don't even know what I'm going to have for dinner later on. I'll be honest, all right? So this is uh, strategic thinking. But um, we have got an expiry date. Um, and actually, a question I get asked quite a lot in the planetarium is, well, will the sun die? Yes, it will. Um, and then I often joke, I'll say, yeah, it's going to die on the 17th of May, 2017. But actually, no, it's not going to, it's not going to end its life for another 5 billion years. And it's middle age at the moment. So it's halfway through its life. It's got a 10 billion year lifespan. And we're very lucky. We're on a planet that is in the Goldilocks zone of our sun. So that means the temperature, the average temperature on the Earth is just right for liquid water. And we have a stable orbit and we have a, sta a rel relatively stable star. Um, and it's long lived. These are all really important factors that, that mean that life could have evolved on our so planet. there are different types of stars out there and if we were orbiting around a different star a more massive star or a, a sure. smaller star that's a lot colder we would we wouldn't maybe be here on earth well, yeah absolutely so like the really really massive stars they don't live for very long a couple of hundred million years that still sounds like a long time but i mean we think it took about a, a billion years probably more than that for the first microbes to evolve on planet Earth for the climate to settle for those first organisms to evolve, you know. So if the lifespan of that star is only a couple hundred million years, I don't think anything is going to get going. And if something does, or if something's delivered by meteorite to that planet, then, you know, that star is going to die. It'll probably explode as a supernova and obliterate um, any early life forms on, on that world. So not the kind of star that you'd want to be Absolutely not. I mean, I can imagine I'd be lovely to orbit a blue star. That'd be beautiful, but we just wouldn't survive. It'd just be a very harsh radiation from that star as well. So we're lucky that we've got a mediocre, kind of medium brightness, medium-sized star that has a very long lifespan. Now, 
The question is, how will the earth react to the death of the sun? You know, will we still be here? What will the earth look like in five billion years time? Um, so what astronomers have been doing, this is very, very clever. What they've been doing, they've been looking at a really similar star called L2 Puppis. Lovely. I know. Nice name. This is, um, so this uh, star is very similar to our sun. So it's got a similar mass. Well, it's a lot lighter now. It used to have um, the same mass as the sun, which is about 10 to the power of 30 kilograms. But now it's evolving to the next stage of its lifetime. So this star has a 10 billion year lifespan, but it's reached the end of its 10 billion years. Whereas, so we're basically looking at the sun in the future. Absolutely. We are watching a star really similar to the sun, but 5 billion years ahead. So it's now in its red giant phase. It's evolving into a planetary nebula phase. This is incredibly exciting. Whoever knew the skies could be a time machine into the future? <laughs> Well, there you go. That's why I love astronomy. You are looking back in time. And there are so many objects out there that you get a real sense of what's happening. You know, you can see, like in the same, uh, if you look at a crowd of people, um, then you see people who are in the later stages of their life. You see babies, you see teenagers. So you're, you're seeing uh, the lifespan of a human being, but in one second, because you're seeing people of different ages. And that's what we do. When we look at the sky, we are seeing stars at different ages and different stages of their life cycle. So we then can plot all of that on a big graph called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and get a, an idea of how stars evolve over time. It's really, it's really useful. Um, so now what's happened with this star is it's, it's undergoing mass loss. So that's what will happen with our sun. It has a very strong stellar wind and it's lost about about at least a third of its mass, okay? So it's out, um, and that, and it will continue to lose mass until eventually um, it becomes a white dwarf star. And a white dwarf star is very, very small, about the size of the Earth, very compact, very dense. And in fact, it's so dense, if you were to take a teaspoon of white dwarf for your coffee, your teaspoon would weigh about five tonnes. So I wouldn't be able to pick that teaspoon up. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you're pretty strong, Dara, but five tonnes, I think, is your limit there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty, pretty heavy. Um, so that's what our sun will become. Um, but just before the white dwarf phase, there's a planetary nebula phase, which is actually a very, very beautiful part of a star lifetime. Um, now, really, really big stars don't go through planetary nebulae. They just explode. It's very, very messy. But our sun will become a planetary nebula. It's got nothing to do with planets. It's just they form very beautiful, colourful, clouds in the sky which look a little bit like planets depending on the shape. Now what's special about L2 Puppis is that it's turning into like an hourglass kind of bipolar butterfly uh, morphology. So it's not a spherical mass loss. It's going out in two directions, wow. two opposite directions. And they think the reason why that's happening is because there's a companion which is incredibly exciting. So there's something that's orbiting that star and they think that that object might be a planet well that's incredibly exciting because then we can we can look at what's happening to that planet and that will give us an idea of how our planet will be affected how clever in the future um so but they don't they're not entirely sure whether it is a planet if if it is a planet it's pretty big so it's a lot bigger than the earth it's probably jupiter sized or well they actually they they've they've estimated the mass of the, this planet they think it's about 12 times uh, the mass of jupiter yeah, so it's pretty, pretty big. Um, or if it's too big to be a gas planet, then it's probably um, a brown dwarf star. And a brown dwarf star is a star that's failed 
to use hydrogen to turn into helium and light. So it's a failed star. So it's not quite fusing that material to produce the light. And Absolutely. It's, it's almost big enough to be a star. It's too big to be a planet. It's kind of in between those two stages. So it could be a brown dwarf. Um, and we, th- we think that the interaction, actually, of that, um, of that companion is funneling material into that butterfly shape. So it's very, very pretty. Um, Now, what does that mean for the Earth and for our solar system in the future? Well, um, because of the strong stellar winds from L2 Puppis, it it is affecting, it's impacting that companion. Um, And what would happen um, for us if we we model the future of our solar system on L2 Puppis? Well, Mercury and Venus um, have very close orbits to the Sun. And in fact, they will be within a region where they'll get engulfed by that red giant star, by that planetary nebula. They'll be pulled in by the tidal forces of that evolving um, star. That doesn't sound particularly pleasant. Absolutely. That is the end for Mercury and Venus. And our Earth, well, this, this planet is about twice, two and a half times the distance from its star um, than our Earth is from the Sun. So it's a, it's a bit further away, but it is being affected by this evolving star. And so our Earth will also be affected by the evolving sun and will definitely be incinerated. So we will lose all of our water. That will just evaporate into steam. So five billion years is how long we've pretty much got to sort ourselves out and get ourselves to another planet where we can actually survive. Or we're just going to be yeah. incinerated. You're absolutely right. Yeah, so there's there's a definite... If we don't get hit by an asteroid or something else happens, then we'll definitely you know, be extinguished in about five billion years time if not sooner as it, as our sun starts to run out of hydrogen and starts to evolve to the next stage of life so the way that they um actually the way they, they observed this star they used uh, millimeter telescopes so this is very close to radio very long wavelength very low energy light um, and they use something called alma um, which is a series of radio antennae. So lots and lots of radio telescopes, 66 of them, in fact, across the Atacama Desert. Um, and all of these radio telescopes, they combine all of the signals, and so it has an effective diameter of 16 kilometres. So it's lots of little telescopes that join up to make one big telescope of 16 kilometre virtual diameter. That means they can achieve um, incredibly high uh, resolution images. And and that allows them to distinguish, you know, the positions of the centre of that star, the companion, how they're orbiting each other. They can use Kepler's laws of motion, so orbital period versus orbital distance, to infer the mass of the companion, the mass of the star, using just gra- laws of gravity, um, using that very high-resolution telescope. So they've, they've managed to get a lot of information from this one system. It's really amazing. You're really probing in and having a good look. But um, so there you go. So the L2 puppet is going to hopefully throw out even more information in the future. And we are. It's like a spoiler alert, basically, to the film of our lives. We're seeing um, what's going to happen to our solar system five billion years from now. It's an, an extraordinary project. It's just so sad to think that the Earth, which allows us to survive here and live here, will eventually, you know, die. It, it has a lifetime too, essentially. Yeah. Just like we will eventually, you know, live our lives and end our lives. The sun will do the same and poor yeah. Earth will actually follow the yeah. same fate as well. I get asked, I don't know about you, I get asked quite a lot, like, do you believe in aliens, Rad? And um, I do, I don't believe they've landed on the Earth, but, like, there are so many stars in the universe, um, like 
trillion, trillion stars in the universe. Most of those stars have got planets. And I believe that there will be at least one planet out there that has its own, you know, kind of um, variation on life forms, its own species. And maybe that planet has intelligent life forms and maybe those intelligent life forms look like us. You know, they might have evolved in the same way that we have. So, um, you know, I don't believe we're special. I don't believe we're the only, you know, planet with life. It's quite beautiful when you think about it. That is the story of the universe. <laughs> okay, so these are our two stories. Do uh, follow us on Twitter, at ROG Astronomers, if there's a particular story that you like, or if there's a story that you've seen that you'd like to talk to us about, tweet us, hashtag ROG Schools, and we'll see you again next month for our Look Up podcast. Mm-hmm.